0: You're listening to an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. This episode is brought to you by Youngstown Tile for spectacular flooring. Go bold, go local, go Youngstown Tile. And by River Rock at the Amp. Saturdays in the summertime, there's no other place to be than at the Amp and Warren. And before you go, stop by the Sunrise Inn for the best food in Warren. And by Rick Perello, author of the new true crime thriller There's More Bodies Out There, available now on RickPirello.com. Welcome to the Vice Squad Pod. I'm your host, Vince Greer. Tonight's episode, The Torso Murders. On May 3rd, 1940, boxcars were being prepared for the scrap heap at the Pennsylvania and Lake Erie Railroad Yards in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. The railroad service area was limited. From its headquarters and terminal on the south side of the Monongahela River near downtown Pittsburgh, since restored as the Station Square complex, the P&LE went along the Mon down to Connellsville in western Pennsylvania coal country. In the opposite direction, it connected with the New York Central Yards in Hazleton on Youngstown's east side, but because it transported an enormous amount of materials between coal mines and the steel mills that could be found from Pittsburgh to Youngstown, it had become known as the Little Giants. These particular cars had been abandoned for more than a year on the east side of Youngstown, then taken first to a siding in Struthers in April, and then to what was supposed to be their final destination in McKee's Rocks. Yard men were checking the boxcars, trying to find the source of a terrible odor, and they made a horrifying discovery. Inside one of them was the dismembered corpse of a man, body parts wrapped separately in burlap. The man's head was missing. In the next car was another man, also dismembered and wrapped in burlap. In yet another car was a man, badly decomposed, who'd been decapitated the word Nazi had been carved into his chest. All three men had apparently been killed in December while the railroad cars were still in Youngstown. Within a week, one of the three men was identified as James David Nicholson, 30, an Illinois native who'd served prison terms in his home state as well as Wisconsin, and a 30-day bit in jail in Greenville, South Carolina. Coroner's Dr. P.R. Heimbold in Pittsburgh said in the next day's Cleveland Plain Dealer that the bodies had been cut, quote, by an expert who had some knowledge of surgery or was a butcher, end quote. The plain dealer noted that anatomical knowledge was a hallmark of a Cleveland serial killer who had become known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. For years, body parts had turned up in industrial areas around Cleveland, largely on the east side. Near the city's New York Central Railroad Yards in Collinwood, along the riverbanks and the industrial flats, and throughout Kingsbury Run, a small creek that at one point was home to one of John D. Rockefeller's early oil refineries. But the killer had not struck since August 1938, when the last two victims turned up in the Lakeshore Dump downtown. Following those last two murders, Elliot Ness, who'd been hired as City Safety Service Director on the strength of his performance with the U.S. Treasury Department in Chicago, took the drastic step of a raid in Kingsbury Run, arresting dozens and burning the shantytown there to the ground. The public was outraged by this grotesque abuse of civil liberties, but the killing stopped, at least in Cleveland. Cleveland police detective Peter Merlot, who had led the investigation as soon as officials started to realize the murders might be connected, believed that the murderer had ridden the rails, preying on the homeless and those on the margins of society, not just in Cleveland, but Youngstown and Pittsburgh as well. The official tally of victims in Cleveland was 12, but Merlo believed it was much higher, and the discovery of the three bodies in McKee's Rocks, likely killed in or around Youngstown, cinched it for him. I think it is safe to say, Merlo said at the time, that the Mad Butcher's victims now total 23. In the 1920s, the area was known as the murder swamp in local newspapers. Sometimes it was called Hell's half Acre, Southwest of Newcastle, Pennsylvania, and not far from where the Beaver and Mahoning Rivers meet, the marshy area was believed to be a dumping ground for casualties in the growing field of organized crime. The Black Hand, the sort of proto-mafia of Italian immigrants extorting other Italian immigrants, operated with impunity in the Youngstown area, just across the state line and prohibition had led to especially bloody fighting in the Pittsburgh area among gangs, many of Italian origin, trying to supply the region with booze. But even beyond potential organized crime activity, strange things seemed to happen in and around the swamp. In 1921, Emma Jackson was found dead in the bedroom of her home in Wampum, just south of Newcastle. She'd had her throat cut, almost to the point of decapitation. Two years later, in nearby Rock Point, the torso of a young girl, about six years old, washed ashore along the Beaver River. No girl had been reported missing nearby from Newcastle, Sharon, or Youngstown, and her identity and the circumstances of her death remain a mystery. On January 1st, 1925, remains were found in a smoldering shed along the Conowingo River. Although never positively identified, the torso, the only thing found in the fire, was believed to be that of Luigi Noscezzi, a local teen who'd left his house to play with friends earlier that day. All three cases were unsolved. Later, in 1925, more bodies, or at least body parts, were discovered in the woods. A hunter stumbled across a headless man sitting up under a tree on October 6th. The man's head was found two days later, buried under where his feet been. Less than two weeks later, another hunting party found a headless man in the bushes. Later that same day, a skull was recovered, but not from the man. This was from a woman who had been dead for at least a year. Clothing found with the two bodies was cleaned and displayed in the window of a local store with hopes that someone would be able to identify the clothes and ultimately the bodies. But nobody did. The murders and dismemberments were chalked up as the weird crimes that made everyone check their doors were locked and sleep a little less fitfully, at least until body parts started showing up in Cleveland a decade later. On September 5, 1934, the lower half of a woman's torso, including her thighs, washed ashore on Euclid Beach, just east of Broughton in eastern Cuyahoga County. The woman, never identified, became known as the Lady of the Lake. She was believed to have been in her 30s, and her body had been treated with some type of preserve. The following month, another body was found in the murder swamp of Lawrence County. It was not decapitated, so it's not believed to be part of the other dismemberment murders in Newcastle or Cleveland. About six weeks later, two men walking their dogs in Newcastle came across a body badly decomposed and likely dead for three months or more. The body was unable to be identified and there was no sign that it was shot or stabbed. The body was not decapitated, leading investigators to surmise that it wasn't related to the torso murders. The likely theory was that it was a casualty of an organized crime war, dumped in the murder swamp. In September 1935, another body was found in Cleveland, one of the few who could be identified by police. Edward Andrassi's head and genitals had been cut off and his body had been cleaned and drained of blood. While searching the area, police found another body, also with its head and genitals removed and also drained of blood. The body appears to have been treated with the same chemical as the Lady of the Lake. The following February, another body was recovered. Parts of Flo Palillo, who had been decapitated, were found wrapped in newspaper in bushels near a factory on Cleveland's east side. Police were starting to consider the dismemberment homicides as related. In each instance, decapitation was the cause of death. It was a bedeviling case for the famous young lawman brought in to clean up Cleveland. Elliot Ness had grown up in Chicago and became known as the leader of the untouchable a small prohibition bureau unit so named for their incorruptibility. Following the repeal of prohibition, the Treasury Department transferred Ness to Ohio, first to Cincinnati, and then in 1934 to Cleveland. The following year, Mayor Harold Burton hired Ness to be the youngest safety director in the city's history. Cleveland was regarded as every bit as corrupt and dangerous as Ness's former home in Chicago. The police department was a haven for political patronage and in bed with local organized crime, which ran illegal gambling and other operations throughout the industrial city. Ness set to work immediately, professionalizing the police department. Two officers were fired off the jump for drinking on the job. Eight officers were indicted for bribery, and dozens more resigned, with Ness replacing many from a new training school he'd established. He started Boy Scout troops throughout the city with an eye toward reducing juvenile crime and traffic fatalities went down by half, thanks in no small part to a new traffic division with motorcycle police officers. Police officers were equipped with the latest technology, including two-way radios and teletype machines. The vehicles were painted red, white, and blue, a bit of showmanship to be sure, but also increasing visibility on the streets of Cleveland. One of Ness's first orders of business was to close down the Harvard Club an illegal gambling casino just outside the city limits in Newburgh Heights. He led a raid in January 1936 that at least temporarily did so. It reopened down the street, operating relatively unfettered for another five years. And it was right around then that investigators started to think that the body parts turning up throughout Cleveland's east side might all be related. It was an inauspicious start to what was supposed to be a banner year in Cleveland. The city had established itself not just as an industrial power, but in the previous decades started billing itself as the City of Conventions. A new central railroad station underneath the tallest building in the country outside of New York City would ferry travelers into town, where they could stay at any one of several luxurious hotels nearby. There were plenty of entertainment opportunities, both legitimate and illicit, and the ethnic enclaves brought forth a variety of excellent restaurants and 1936 was supposed to be a booming year. The Republican National Convention was coming to Cleveland, as were conventions for the Socialist Party, the American Legion, and the Townsend Plan. But the big event that summer would be the Great Lakes Exposition, a World's Fair set up on the lakefront not far from the new Cleveland Municipal Stadium. To great fanfare, the exposition opened June 27, 1936, with President Franklin Roosevelt pressing a button to light up the fair from the White House. Three weeks earlier, another victim of the Mad Butcher was found on the east side. Kids found a decapitated head wrapped in a pair of pants and a nude body was found not far away near the railroad tracks. The victim, known as the Tattooed Man, had been killed elsewhere and his body dumped there. A mask was taken of his face and put on display at the exposition in the hopes that he would be identified by one of the hundreds of thousands of people who visited. Nobody ever did. On July 1st, less than a month after the tattooed man was found, and less than a week after the Great Lakes Exposition opened, a body was discovered in an abandoned boxcar at Newcastle Junction. Again, workers were drawn to a sickening smell and buzzards flying overhead. They found a decomposed, headless body lying atop newspapers from 1933 from Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Cleveland investigators by then had four bodies to investigate, five if you count the lady in the lake. Dozens of tips were pouring in, not just from the Cleveland area, but throughout the Midwest as the story attracted national attention. Cleveland police heard about the body found in Newcastle and journeyed there to find out more, but it was abundantly clear to Peter Merlin This was the work of the same killer as in Cleveland. Merlot, described by the police chief as the hardest working man on the force, plunged headlong into the Lawrence County investigation, learning everything he could about the notorious murder swamp. Merlot's theory was that the killer was a railroad worker, able to travel between Cleveland and Youngstown and Pittsburgh, leaving a trail of bodies in his wake. But Ness, who had taken a personal interest in the torso murders, due to their sensational media coverage, had his own theory, and even zeroed in on a suspect, Francis Sweeney, an alcoholic, schizophrenic, politically connected doctor. His first cousin was a congressman. Ness ultimately picked up Sweeney in secret, even Merlot didn't know about it, and took him to the Cleveland Hotel, now the Renaissance, on Public Square. Allegedly, it took three days just to sober Sweeney up. He was given a polygraph test, he was never formally charged, and in August 1938 he was admitted to the veterans home in Sandusky. For years afterward, Ness received cryptic taunting postcards from Sweeney. The only person who was ever arrested in connection with the torso murders was Frank Dolezal. He was a bricklayer who had lived with Flo Palilla, the third victim, and knew the only other two Cleveland victims who were ever identified. Dolezal was arrested in 1939 confessed to killing Palillo, but later recanted. He died in the Cuyahoga County Jail, officially a suicide, but his death in police custody was suspicious. On August 16, 1938, the final two of the Butcher's Dozen victims were found in a landfill that a year earlier had been home to the Great Lakes Exposition. They were within sight of Ness's office at City Hall. Two days later, Ness led a squad of police officers through Kingsbury Run, arresting dozens and burning down the shantytown. After that, the killing stopped. Later that year, Cleveland police received a letter purportedly from the killer, which read, you can rest easy now. I have come out to sunny California for the winter. But dead bodies continued to pile up in the murder swamp. On October 13, 1939, three men were walking through the swamp, and they found a naked man's body, headless and burned, Six days later, after a lengthy and intensive search by the state police, a railroad inspector found the head of a sandy-haired man. Like in Newcastle and later in McKee's Rocks, it was the smell of decomposition that led him to the head. After finding the bodies in railroad cars the following May, Merlot went undercover, finding a rooming house on Poland Avenue in Youngstown, hoping to traverse the Mahoning Valley's seedy underbelly and come up with the identity of the Mad Butcher. He and a partner prowled around transient camps in Youngstown and rode the rails through Lawrence County, but to no avail. Then on November 2nd, 1940, a scenario that had become all too familiar played out again. A man hunting rabbits in Lawrence County found a human skull and called police. Investigators then found a skeleton nearby. Less than a year later, on May 26, 1941, Two men trying to hop off a freight train found a man's leg severed at the hip on the bank of the Ohio River near the Sewickley Bridge outside of Pittsburgh. Five days later, what was believed to be the other leg from the same person washed up on the opposite bank of the river near Neville Island. Could it have been the work of the Mad Butcher? No concrete link was ever established, but local newspaper reports noted that the amputations had been done with great skill a hallmark of the Kingsbury-run murders. That September, another decapitated body was found in a dump on the south bank of the Monongahela River near P&LE tracks. The dump location recalled the final two torso murders in Cleveland in 1938. The following June, another body was found on the banks of the Monongahela near the 10th Street Bridge, not far from the P&LE station complex. But neither of those two bodies were regarded as the mad butcher's handiwork. By then, the nation was at war. The war effort took up all the attention and manpower that would have been devoted to police investigations. Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and the Mahoning Valley had all become important components of what Franklin Roosevelt called the arsenal of democracy. In any way, the killer had vanished. Or had it. On January 15, 1947, the body of Elizabeth Short was found bisected and drained of blood in a Los Angeles park. Nearly a decade earlier, a letter from someone claiming to be the torso murderer said he had gone to California. Was the woman who had become known as the Black Day his latest victim? No connection was ever made between the Black Day and the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, but the murders remained connected in the public consciousness, thanks to pop culture references like the show Unsolved Mysteries. It's an example of the line from the man who shot Liberty Valance about the legend becoming fact. On July 22, 1950, more than a decade after the last decapitation murders in Cleveland, another headless body was found on the east side, near East 22nd Street. Once again, the stench of death led to the discovery. The head was eventually recovered, and the victim was identified as Robert Robertson. Cuyahoga County Coroner Dr. Sam Gerber and local newspapers noted the similarity between the murder and the Mad Butcher's crimes in the 1930s. By then, Peter Merlo had retired from Cleveland police, but he believed that the murder was part of the torso killer's handiwork. Officially, the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run was responsible for a dozen murders in Cleveland, but Merlo believed the number could be twice that, including murders in Pittsburgh and around Lawrence County. He retired from the police force in 1943 and started his own detective agency. His office was in the old arcade downtown, and he was headed there in May 1958, when he collapsed and died. Merlot died a year after Elliot Ness, who ended his life in obscurity and debts. In 1940, Harold Burton, the mayor of Cleveland who had hired him as safety director, was elected to the U.S. Senate. He later became a Supreme Court Justice. By then, Ness's marriage, his second, had failed, and in a sad irony, The man who made his fame battling bootleggers himself had a terrible drinking problem. In 1942, Ness and his third wife moved to Washington, D.C. He took over a federal program to help combat prostitution and venereal disease around military bases, but the timing was suspect. His move came not long after he was involved in a hit skip crash in the wee hours of the morning after he and his wife had enjoyed a night on the town. Following the war, Ness went to work for Diebold in Canton made an ill-fated run for mayor of Cleveland in 1947. Had he done so in 1941, after Burton went to Washington, he likely would have won. But his successes had faded from the public eye, and he was soundly drubbed in the election by incumbent Thomas Burke. He also had been ousted by the board at Diebold and suddenly found himself jobless. Other business interests failed, and Ness ended up in Cattersport, a small city in north-central Pennsylvania. He died in the kitchen of his home of a heart attack on May 16, 1957. He was 54 years old, but by all accounts looked older, worn down by time, scotch, and just maybe the failure to bring the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run to justice. Ness believed to his dying day that Francis Sweeney, who himself died in 1964, was the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run. But Merlot's theory was that the killer was someone intimately familiar with the railroads able to ride freights unseen throughout the region and move about in homeless encampments and shantytowns. Sweeney, the slight man, seemed an unlikely killer in Merlot's eyes. His and Ness's theories could not both be correct. Ness died without a will, and his debts exceeded his assets by $8,000. Among his assets was a $200 advance payment for a forthcoming book written with United Press International sports writer Oscar Fraley. Ness had just read the proofs, but he never saw the published product, which was released a month after his death. Of course, it was The Untouchables, and Elliot Ness soon became a household name. The book, which sold 1.5 million copies, was quickly optioned for a television program by Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. A generation later, it was turned into a movie, and then after that was fodder for another syndicated television show. The Untouchables told the story of Ness's exploits against Al Capone and the Chicago Outfit. They made no mention of his time in Cleveland. Every bit the heroic story is his time in Chicago, even if he couldn't officially solve the torso murders. In 1997, Ness's earthly remains, along with those of his last wife and their son, were brought back to Cleveland. Their ashes were scattered at Wade Lake, at Lakeview Cemetery on Cleveland's east side. Not far from where body parts were scattered 60 years earlier, as the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run struck terror in the city. References for tonight's story, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Cleveland Police Museum, the Pittsburgh Post Gazette, FBI files gathered through a public records request, and the books Hell's Wasteland and The Wake of the Butcher by James Jessen Badal. That was an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. To watch with video, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash amazingpodcastcompany. For more, visit our website at www.amazingpodco.com. If you enjoyed the show, please click the like and subscribe buttons and share it with your friends. It goes a long way in helping us produce more amazing content.